this is not 2008 all over again. Mm -hmm. This is a great normalization after an extended period of 2020, 2021, where the housing market was absurdly high. That was unsustainable. We're normalizing to more sustainable levels. There's going to be some noise in the normalization. But come 2023, you're going to see home sales go up, unit home sales, and you're going to see home prices rise at their historically average low to mid single digit CAGR. And that's how the market's going to progress. All these calls for housing market crash, way overblown. Great normalization, not great crash. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, how are we doing today? We're back for another week. We're back. We're back. Back in action. Uh, good day. You can see right here, it's all green, right? That looks good. Green looks um, good. Green looks good. Stocks have been on the rebound. we got earnings season on the horizon. It's going to make or break the rally, so let's talk about that over the next hour. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to getting into all of that and all of our topics in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of an investment analyst, Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, electric vehicles, cryptocurrencies, the metaverse, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcasts. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get hypergrowth investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator and lifelong learner and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Ton of things to cover. Let's dive right in. Uh, Luke, we've talked about the housing market before. Um, you're, you, you've basically kind of stated where your position is on it. Um, but some interesting uh, things have come out. The National Association of Home Builders Index fell for the seventh straight month to its lowest level since May of 2020. The 12-point mm -hmm. drop from 67 to 55 was also the second largest drop in the history of this index. Uh, a shocking drop, and it came in below all 31 analyst estimates. Now, you stated several times on the show that you believe the housing market will not collapse. Mm -hmm. With this data, does that still hold true in light of what's going on right now? Yeah, sure. So let's actually, let's pull up that data for a moment. Let's, uh, I'll screen share with you and we can Perfect. take a look at that exact data point you're talking about, or rather the, the time series therein. You got it on your screen? Mm-hmm. Coming in yeah, now. So this, is the, this is the NAHB Home Builder Sentiment Index. Um, and to your point, it crashed to 55. It was supposed to be, I think the estimate was 66. It was 67 prior. Big miss, 12-point drop, second largest on record, biggest on record, excluding the COVID-19 pandemic. So you have to exclude that data because it's anomalous. Biggest drop on record, let's call it that. But look to where it's crashing to. It's crashing to 55. So it broke this. This is kind of a critical support level for home builder sentiment. Uh, and that's the 60 level. Okay. Sometimes we crash below and it's ugly. Most times we crash below and it's brief. Very brief fall downs mm -hmm. below. Very brief. History says that there is nothing truly worrisome about this crash to 55. This happens. There's volatility in the in the uh, in the data, and normally we bounce back. 
Oh, wait, we didn't bounce back. We dropped all the way below 10. We're at 55 still. A pretty healthy reading. If you were to look at this chart and say, okay, what's the median reading over the past 20 years? 55 is about the median reading. Mm -hmm. So we're not crashing to, oh my God, awful levels. <laughs> we're crashing to normal levels after being highly elevated for a long, for about 18 to uh, 24 mm -hmm. months. So this is a normalization, not a crash. And that is the whole thesis that we have been painting in this podcast and um, in my uh, publications for several months now. What we're seeing is a great normalization of the housing market, not a great crash of the housing mm -hmm. market. And the two big reasons why I say that is one, supply, and two, demand. On the supply front, we are in the most supply-constrained housing market of all time. What happened is that 2008 mm -hmm. hit. First off, 2004, 2005, 2006, this American dream of everybody owning a home was the defining theme of mm -hmm. American culture. Everybody was involved in that big buying spree. 08 hit, 07, 08 hit. A lot of people lost their homes. Everybody was freaked out. The American dream was broken. And that created a lot of consumer hesitancy in the housing market. Demand kind of fell out. People were very nervous. You had a lot of people in our generation, Aaron, that decided to, maybe I'll stay at home with my parents. I won't go out and, and buy, you know, the, the white picket fence with the lawn, my little, you know, three-bedroom home. Not, not going to do that. So a lot of people were staying at home. A lot of people were moving to cities and living in apartments and condos. Home buying demand was very weak post-08. As a result, home builders didn't build that much. Home construction activity between 2008 and 2019 was significantly lower than it was between 1995 and 2004, than it was between 85 and 95. It was the, low, the lowest volume of home building on record, that stretch post-08. So we basically had a decade plus of underbuilding in the housing market. Then COVID-19 hit, and all of a sudden, everybody wanted to own a home for various reasons. Memories of 08 got wiped out. Um, there was this remote work shift. People wanted to work from home, and so they wanted to look for homes that accommodated that. Um, there was this whole shift towards an enhanced recognition of the value of a home. Home buying demand came back, but we've been underbuilding for 10 years. So you had this massive demand surge against the backdrop of a very supply-constrained market. And now you're seeing those supply constraints still last. Month supply in the U.S. housing market is 2.6 months, meaning that if no new supply came on, it would take 2.6 months of current buying activity rates to wipe out all the inventory. That's very, very low. Normally, you're looking at five, six, seven, eight months. And in terms of when does the market crash, normally that inventory level month supply is up above 12 months, 13 months, 14 months. It starts getting into those double-digit numbers. We're at 2.6 right now. We're very low. Mm -hmm. New supply has to come into the market for prices to come down. But new supply can't come into the market from existing home sellers, right? Because for most of us, if we sell a home, we got to go buy a mm -hmm. home. Not a lot of us own two or three homes. So <laughs> the existing pool of homeowners are not going to elevate the supply of homes on the market. Sorry. The new supply is going to come from home builders. Mm -hmm. Home builders have to go from underbuilding to overbuilding. But building a home takes a while. Mm -hmm. It's a 12, 16, 18 month process. 
And once you've underbuilt for a decade, you now have to overbuild for a decade just to balance out the market. So not only are we in a supply-constrained housing market, but we will likely remain in a supply-constrained housing market for a long time. Because in order to get to the point that we got to today, it took a decade of underbuilding, meaning it's going to take a decade of overbuilding to crawl our way out of this inventory hole. So that's the first reason I'm very confident in saying this is a housing market normalization mm -hmm. and not a housing market mm -hmm. crash. The second point is that demand is very, very high. Again, we had a whole generation of people that throughout the 2010s graduated college and either went to go live in cities and owned apartments or condos, not owned rented apartments or condos, or they stayed at home mm -hmm. with their parents. Now that generation of individuals they're making a lot more money. They're at a point in their lives where it kind of makes sense to either move out of your parents' basement or move out of your childhood bedroom mm -hmm. and or get married, have kids, you know, get the the whole American dream of, you know, starting a family, having your own home, a lot of a lot to do. That generation is now at that point. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole bunch of demand that's just waiting on the sidelines for any hiccup in the housing mm -hmm. market. And any sign that price, prices are weakening, any sign that we're starting to see price cuts in the market, which we are mm -hmm. seeing, any sign that it's flipping more towards a balanced market as opposed to a pure seller's market, there's going to be a lot of demand flooding mm -hmm. in. I personally know about a dozen people that are just in my age demographic, mm -hmm. this 25 to 35 demographic that are just sitting and waiting on the sidelines. And as soon as there's any hiccup, they are jumping into the market and they're going mm -hmm. to buy. There's a lot of pent up demand sitting on the sidelines. So low supply, ultra low supply, that's going to take a decade to build mm -hmm. out of and ultra high demand that's just waiting on the sidelines. That combination means this is not a housing market crash. Mm -hmm. This is not 2008 all over again. Mm -hmm. This is a great normalization after an extended period of 2020, 2021, where the housing market was absurdly high. That was mm -hmm. unsustainable. We're normalizing to more sustainable levels. There's going to be some noise in the normalization. But come mm -hmm. 2023, you're going to see home sales go up, unit home sales, and you're going to see home prices rise at their historically average low to mid single digit CAGR. And mm -hmm. that's how the market's going to progress. All these calls for housing market crash, way overblown. Great normalization, not great crash. So if we are in this normalization period uh, and this dip is just, again, the market correcting itself, why are the, my question is the 31 analysts who just didn't call it right and are shocked by this, why are they so shocked by this, uh, this dip? Well, I don't think they, they saw the housing market cooling off as quickly as it has. I mean, mortgage, nobody saw mortgage rates spiking as quickly as they have. Okay. I mean, mortgage rates are on the back of their sharpest ascent in the history of mortgage rates. Um, that shocking ascent has led to a shocking decline in home buying activity and in home builder confidence because okay. they're related. They're tied together. So that is the, the kind of shock that happened here. And so part of the thesis, you know, a kind of third sub point at supply and demand, what's going to help demand on, in the housing market is mortgage rates have topped out. Mm -hmm. Go look at the 10-year Treasury yield. 10-year mm -hmm. Treasury yield went from 1.5 to 3.5 in about eight, nine months. It is now pulled back from 3.5 and appears range-bound at 3%. I was just on um, 
on my Bloomberg terminal and looking at the consensus estimates for 10-year Treasury yields from, you know, again, it was something like 48 analysts, you know, a lot of, a lot of you, a big number. Um, the 10-year Treasury yield is expected to remain range-bound around 3%, 2.9 to 3.1 for the rest of 2022, into 2023, into 2024. People are pricing in rate cuts in 2024 from the Fed because the economy is slowing so dramatically right now. Mm-hmm. So mortgage rates kind of – they front-ran all the rate hikes, and now they're pulling back. They shot above okay. 6%, 30-year fixed come back down to 5.75 5.5 i think it stays range bound between five and six for a while and maybe even comes down back into the fours i think mortgage rates are actually going to now be a tailwind to the market not a headwind as that shifts that is what's going to bring more demand online supply is going to still stay low that's going to create a housing market where prices continue to appreciate not at their 10 percent, 20 percent rate that they did in 2020 2021 but again great normalization back to mid single digit hpa mm-hmm. that's what we've seen throughout the past 50 years that's what we'll start seeing again in 2023 2024 so on and so forth okay uh well moving on from our homes to how we travel let's get into our ev check-in uh Let's touch on a few of the EV names we've touched on the last few weeks. Uh, first up, Canoe. Uh, you know, the stock ripped on news. We talked about this last week of the delivery vehicle partnership with Walmart. Uh, shortly after, though, uh, something we didn't touch on uh, was a published press release announcing that they've been awarded by the U.S. Army to supply their multi-purpose platform technology for analysis and demonstration. Um, before we even get into what this means for Canoe, what does that mean, the, that they're um, being supplied uh, technology? They're being their technology is being analyzed for a demonstration. Is this mean that the U.S. Army is buying into Canoe wholeheartedly, or you know, is what does this demonstration mean? First, Aaron, let me pull this up. Okay, let me know when it's on your screen. Coming up, and it is on now. Yep. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Isn't that pretty? That is, I, I swear, if, if, if Walmart just goes all canoe and all the delivery vans are canoe, I am never going to yeah. shop at Amazon again. I am, I am going to okay. exclusively order from Walmart and I'm going to sit on the front porch and I'm going to patiently wait every day for this van to come by just so I can see this van. I know a lot of people okay. don't like the look. I know it kind of looks like a bug, but I mean, God, I think it is so, so, so sexy. I think canoe cars are the sexiest cars on the planet. Anyways, um, just wanted to pull that up because I think that's a really cool mock-up design for the Walmart stuff. Sure, Um, sure. Yeah, so so Canoe, I mean, let's just – let's zoom out and look at the big picture thesis on Canoe. Um, Bulls have been lamented as as idiots for a long time because the stock has been absolutely crushed. But the Bulls Uh have constantly been saying, okay – Canoe actually has this really powerful underlying technology, this multi-purpose platform, MPP, where they've essentially, through a few cool tricks like uh, drive-by-wire, have eliminated all the wasted space in vehicles and removed a lot of the gear so that you can maximize the interior cabin space of a vehicle on the same platform mm-hmm. Um as you know as a competitor's vehicle so for example the lifestyle car which is the one they sell to consumers like you and me it's about the same length as a tesla model 3 but Mm -hmm. has the the platform the the car platform but the car itself has almost double the interior cabin space Mm -hmm. as a tesla model 3 
So you're basically doubling your per square foot um, area of of the, of the cabin. And that is a really cool value prop for, I don't know, a family that has three kids, four kids mm-hmm. and a dog, family that travels a lot, a family that backpacks a lot, that hikes a lot, that likes to adventure a lot, that surfs. It seems like that that's a really cool value prop for a lot of families in America. Moving on to pickup trucks. Mm-hmm. You look at the pickup truck, it has 30% more cargo space than a pickup truck of the same size from Ford or GM or whatever. That seems like a pretty awesome value prop for contractors, construction workers, people that use pickup trucks and need that bed to carry a lot of cargo. Let's talk about delivery vans, which is the big news with Walmart. 30% more cabin space on the same platform as a competitor's vehicle. That means more trips, or I mean less trips, Mm -hmm. more cargo per trip. So the whole bull thesis on Canoe has always been, hey, they actually have this really cool proprietary defensible technology that allows them to create cars that optimize space. Mm -hmm. So any customer that wants to optimize space is probably going to buy a canoe. That's been the bull thesis forever. Now, that bull thesis got lost in the sauce because the stock's been hammered. There's been liquidity issues, cash burn, C-suite shakeups, business model changes, a lot of noise, a lot of negative stuff that's happened. And I get that. I acknowledge all that. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, if indeed this company can appeal to space-conscious customers, Mm -hmm. then the company's going to win. It's going to sell a lot of cars to those space conscious customers. And the past week sort of validated, and even going back three or four weeks, mm-hmm. validated that big name, big time space conscious customers do see the value of Canoe. The first deal, which the market didn't really pay attention to, was NASA. Okay. NASA signed a deal with Canoe to shuttle astronauts basically to and from rocket launches. Now that makes a lot of sense, right? Because when you think about that, Sometimes you have multiple astronauts, you have a lot of gear, you need a lot of space, you want comfort, makes a lot of sense. That's a space conscious customer, makes sense they would sign up with Canoe. <laughs> now let's go to Walmart. Walmart, one of the largest retailer in the world, mm-hmm. one of the largest logistics companies in the world too as a result of that. They need to have vans that optimize space. They're a space conscious customer. Mm-hmm. They've signed a deal for 4,500 Canoe delivery vans option to get 10,000 canoe delivery vans and an equity grant to acquire 20% of the company. And they made canoe sign essentially what was a non-compete agreement so that canoe cannot sell any delivery vans to Walmart's biggest competitor, Amazon. Okay. To me, that's that screams Walmart space conscious customer absolutely loves the value prop of canoes delivery vans. And then you have the Army. So mm-hmm. there's no deal with the Army. The Army's simply testing the vehicles. But think about the U.S. Army. That's mm-hmm. another space-conscious customer. They want a vehicle. They don't care what the outside looks like. They want a vehicle that optimizes the space inside the car so they can transport more troops, transport more cargo, transport more resources. Very important to military operations, to Army operations. That's why they're testing the cars. So if you look at the past four weeks, Mm -hmm. we've received significant, meaningful validation Mm -hmm. that space-conscious customers do indeed value to a high degree the space optimization qualities inherent to Canoe's vehicles. If this scales, 
Walmart goes from 4,500 to 10,000 to 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 vehicles. NASA says, mm-hmm. okay, we got this partnership. Let's do it with all the cars across, you know, all the U.S. space agencies. Sure. Um, the U.S. Army is like, this is a really cool car. Let's adopt it. Navy is like, hey, maybe we'll get some. Air Force is like, hey, we'll get some too. If these early stage deals scale, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you are talking about a company that is going to produce 50,000, 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 or more cars per year by the late 2020s. That's a company that should be worth tens of billions of dollars, if not more than $100 billion. And you look at the stock price today and that's simply not priced in. Now, the big concern mm-hmm. with Canoe, of course, is liquidity. They're burning a lot of cash. I mean, they mm-hmm. – I, I don't want to say they were mismanaged. I, I, I don't think they were mismanaged. I just think mm-hmm. management – did not understand the amount of capital that would be used to build these cars, to manufacture these cars, to mm-hmm. build the facilities to manufacture the cars. So cash runs a real issue right there. They're going to run out of cash any month now. But now they have these deals in place. Mm-hmm. It seems like investors are probably going to want to give them capital because it's not mm-hmm. like, you know, a month ago it was, okay, um, canoe. I have this struggling EV maker there's a couple pre-orders. Um, there's no real mm-hmm. sign of enterprise demand. Uh, that's risky. I don't really want to give them capital. Now it's like, mm-hmm. oh, you have a 4,500 unit order from Walmart that could go to 10,000 mm-hmm. and they want to acquire 20% of your company and they're making you uh, sign an agreement that you're not going to sell to Amazon. Oh, and the um, uh, the Army's testing your vehicles. Oh, and NASA's using your vehicles. All of a sudden, if I'm mm-hmm. an investor, if I'm a bank, capital markets, I'm looking at Canoe and I'm like, hell yeah, I'm going to give you some money. I mean, this mm-hmm. money I know you're going to use to fulfill a giant order that's going to be worth hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars, potentially billions of dollars. So that's why I think the story around Canoe has just fundamentally shifted over the past four weeks, fundamentally shifted. And my confidence in the stock, it, it, it was shaken. It was. I mean, the stock has been crushed. And when a stock you crush mm-hmm. that hard, as a bull, you get shook. But mm-hmm. my confidence has been restored 100% in this name. And I am very positive on the long-term outlook for Canoe stock that from its $4 price tag today, you could see a $20, $30, $40, $50 stock in the future. If these early stage deals scale, I think the odds of that are high enough that the risk reward on the stock is attractive. I'd be a buyer at current levels for sure. Okay. Good news for Canoe. Uh, Let's also check in with uh, Rivian. Uh, We know that this is another one of your favorites for the long haul. So I just want to check in here Mm -hmm. to see if you could quickly provide uh, our viewers an update with any of the latest goings on with Rivian. Yeah, so Rivian is, um, uh, the stock's doing pretty well recently. Um, They're, from the looks of it, from the updates we've received, crushing it on the production front. I am personally seeing quite a few R1Ts in uh, San Diego and in LA in the Southern California area. So I personally, you know, kind of the ground level observation does look like they're crushing on the production front. Um, those cars look amazing on the road. They are they are mm-hmm. head turners. And when everyone is parked in a parking lot, you know, it's kind of like everyone walks by and they're like, what's that? What's what? What's that? That's a cool car. What's that? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a head turner for sure. So um, really excited about what's going on there. I think the 
the story there is going to continue to build. Momentum's going to continue to build. I think they're going to hit their 2022 delivery targets and really grow in 23. Um, I like the mm-hmm. stock long term. Um, it's had, had a big run up here. Um, and so it's probably due for a kind of a short term pullback. But then I think after that pullback, it resumes the March higher. So really like what's going on there. Um, they got the Amazon partnership, obviously. So it's kind of mm-hmm. interesting when you think about it. All these big companies are they kind of have their own electric vehicle delivery horses or makers, okay. so to speak. Yeah. Um, Walmart has Canoe. Amazon mm-hmm. has Rivian. UPS has Arrival. Um, and so it's kind of like, you know, as opposed to one supplier supplying all of them, they each kind of pick mm-hmm. their own little horse. And I think that yep. creates a lot of opportunities for investors. I would be invested in those horses because mm-hmm. those are companies that are being supported by, funded by, backed by very, very large um, companies that have billions of dollars in the balance sheet and have, you know, in UPS's case, uh, several decades of successful operating history and Walmart's case mm-hmm. as well. So um, I would be backers of, of those individual companies, um, the arrivals, the uh, canoes, the uh, Rivians of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like I like that value prop. I think electric delivery vans is a really exciting space. So the real question is, is that Walmart van pulls up to your house alongside an RT1, which one you get to pick one, which one do you keep? Well, if it's an RT1 that doesn't exist, I don't know. The R1T. Uh, R1T, um, sorry. <laughs> uh, the the canoe. <laughs> you, you have to do that. You're, you're driving I, the brand I, over. You're driving that Walmart branding. I, I mean, okay, maybe not the Walmart branded one, although I think that'd be kind of cool as well. <laughs> I, I love the look of, of the canoe. I know my wife hates it. My wife's like, oh my God, it's ugliest car of all time. I'm like, babe, it is the coolest car of all It is the coolest car of all time. I, I, love, the, I love the way the canoe looks. I think, I think it's super cool. Mm. Um, the, the R1S, I'm not a pickup truck guy, so I would, I would not an R1T buyer, but the R1S is gorgeous mm. and um okay my wife loves that car i think a lot of people really think that car is is really pretty um so it's nothing against rivian i just i just look at a canoe and i'm like if i drive that i mean if, if you it, 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 for me it, it's kind of like and you know me i wear yeah. crocs everywhere uh-huh. right I wear Crocs. I wear Crocs. They're the forty dollar, you know, clog yep. shoe that yep. is no, literally known for being ugly. Literally, but it's literally known for being ugly. Yet yeah. I wear it everywhere because it is the most useful shoe of all time. I wear it to business meetings. I wear it playing basketball. I wear it doing mm-hmm. yard work. I wear it working mm-hmm. out, running on the treadmill, lifting. I wear it on a walk around the the block. I wear it to the beach. I wear it hiking. I will wear my Crocs everywhere and that's the beauty of them is they're so multi-purpose there is so much utility Mm -hmm. behind a croc that's what i see with a canoe canoe is the the, the croc of the uh electric vehicle world you look at it and yeah ostensibly objectively it's kind of ugly it looks like a bug on wheels (laughs) i get that but it is the most useful car on the planet. The same length as a Tesla Model 3, yet double the interior cabin space. Mm-hmm. If, I have, if, if I have three kids, I'm buying that. All right. $35,000, $40,000, $45,000, depending on you know, what version you get, I'm buying that. 
Right. I, I can get all their backpacks in there. I can get all their sports gear, their basketballs, their soccer, their baseballs. You know, I'm buying that. If, if I have two, three kids, that's what I'm buying. It's economic. It makes sense. It can fit everything. It can do, you know, the campers. We can go on road trips with this thing. It's an awesome car. If, if I'm in the construction industry, I like the pickup mm. truck. I see the, uh, watch the demonstration of the pickup truck on YouTube. All mm-hmm. the kind of like cool little features it has. It was mm-hmm. built by pickup enthusiasts for pickup enthusiasts. It's an awesome pickup truck. Again, I'm not a pickup truck driver, but I can a- appreciate a good pickup truck when I see one. And that is a good pickup mm-hmm. truck. And then you look at the delivery, man. If I'm wa- th- This is a no-brainer deal for Walmart. A no-brainer. I want a mm-hmm. car. I don't care what it looks like on the outside. I want a car that maximizes the amount of cargo I can put in it. So that I can do less mm-hmm. trips per day with those vehicles. So yeah. they last longer. It's more cost efficient. That's your answer. These are the crocs of the yeah. electric vehicle space. That's why I'm so <laughs> bullish on that, um, on, on canoe stock. And, you know, I like croc stock. I think it's, it's already had its day in the sun. We called that one back in the pandemic <laughs> and it had a big run. So happy about that. But um, if you're looking for the next crocs, canoe. <laughs> All right. Next croc, canoe. Awesome. Uh, moving on. I want to want to touch on something. We may have touched on it before on the podcast, but we've never really dived really deep into it. Uh, psychedelics. Uh, psychedelic therapies uh, continue to make significant progress in the public eye as well as in clinical trials. Um, can you explain to our viewers why you're so bullish on this space, uh, particularly uh, psilocybin? I believe that's how that's how it's pronounced. Uh, traditionally, magic mushrooms. And uh, what are the latest developments in that industry? Yeah, yeah. Great, great questions. Great industry. Um, Let's start with the history. Psychedelics. When we we say psychedelics, we're talking mind-altering substances. So things like Mm -hmm. mushrooms, magic mushrooms, where the active ingredient is something called psilocybin. Uh, MDMA, LSD ketamine, that class of drugs. Today Mm -hmm. and over the past several decades, the world has viewed them as like, no, 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 like bad drugs, (laughs) bad for you. Um, You know, only druggies do that stuff. Uh Um, But that is actually a misconception that was formed as a result of Richard Nixon's war on drugs. That in the 60s, -hmm. we had this renaissance of research into psychedelics and that research was finding Mm -hmm. that indeed psychedelics those drugs mdma lsd psilocybin specifically psilocybin they have robust Mm -hmm. therapeutic potential that because they can temporarily alter your state of mind they can also if used correctly be used to address mind issues, addiction, ADHD, PTSD, depression. They were found to have very – or early research showed that they had the potential to have robust therapeutic potential with those um, kind of unmet mental diseases. But they also became part of hippie culture, right? In the 60s, -hmm. psychedelics were a huge part of hippie culture. It's what hippies did. Mm-hmm. In an attempt to fight back against hippie culture, Richard Nixon kind of had the the war on drugs. And because it was basically White House, 
Washington, D.C. versus hippies and hippies love psychedelics, White House decided psychedelics were bad and they wrote it into legislation. So all of a sudden, these substances became schedule one drugs, like the same level of badness as cocaine and heroin, um, which is ridiculous. So that's why we've kind of developed this conception over the past several decades that psychedelics are are bad. They're 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 naughty Mm -hmm. drugs. They're cocaine. They're heroin. Um, when in fact they're not, but nobody challenged that status quo. It just kind of became embedded into American culture until recently over the past, I want to say 10 to 15 years, the academic world, the U S academic world decided to challenge that because they opened up their textbooks and realized, Hey, way back in the sixties, there were some pretty cool studies going on that were pretty promising. Then Nixon axed mm-hmm. it, and then we never saw anything for 40 years. But maybe we should reopen that book. Maybe we should start doing some tests of our own. So then Johns Hopkins, UC Berkeley, UC Davis, um, uh, Imperial College London, I believe there was a Columbia study or NYU study. Um, all of these top-notch universities started to do studies on psychedelics, specifically mm-hmm. – on psilocybin. That's been the kind of like the uh, flag waiver of this industry. Um, so they all started studies mm-hmm. on psilocybin and all of their studies showed the exact same thing. This stuff works. Psilocybin is mm-hmm. a magic drug when it comes to curing things mm-hmm. like addiction, depression, ADHD, PTSD, and all of a sudden, everyone's like, wait, 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 wait. Maybe we should rethink how we look at these drugs. Maybe they're not schedule mm-hmm. one heroin, cocaine, going to kill you. Maybe they are things that if used correctly in the right doses, in the right settings, can beneficially change millions of people's lives. I mean, we're talking the eradication mm-hmm. of addiction, the, of alcoholism, the eradication of depression, ADHD, the eradication of diseases that really plague and hinder people. That's what psychedelics can do. And a wave, a plethora of academic research over the past 10 years has proven that. Beyond a reasonable doubt, it has proven that. So as a result of all that research, you're now seeing a wave of companies emerge that are trying to commercialize that research. Take that research, make Mm -hmm. novel, unique drug compounds out of it, push those drug compounds through clinical trials, and hopefully on the other side of it, completely transform the mental health care landscape so that we can actually treat diseases that currently I would consider unmet diseases. I think addiction is an unmet disease. I think ADHD is an unmet disease. I think Mm -hmm. depression is an unmet disease. Yes, we have medications for Mm -hmm. those things, but they're not very good. And anybody who's taken them will tell you they're not very good. Psychedelics represent the next evolution Mm -hmm. of those medicines, a significant step up, a superior treatment to actually help those people get past those diseases. Um, And so that's the kind of backstory on psychedelics. And we are now finally starting to see the barriers, the cultural barriers get broken down. Um, Netflix, Mm -hmm. I haven't seen it yet, but there is a new Netflix documentary, I think, How to Change Your Mind. Have you, do you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. 
I haven't seen it yet. It's in my queue, actually. But yeah, no, it's it's so it's, up there. it's a docu series. I haven't watched it yet. I need to watch it. But I did see the advertisement, and it seems like it does a really good deep dive into this industry. So I would suggest people start there. Netflix has done some other documentaries on this. Um, there's been a lot of pop culture articles on it. So you're starting to see the world kind of turn from a consumer perspective to being like, hey, um, mm-hmm. maybe this stuff's not that bad for you after all. Maybe it could actually be good. Um, and so mm-hmm. that that that's a massive pivot that's happening right now. We're very bullish on psychedelics. We think that there are some stocks out there that are very high upside picks on this space. Um, so really happy to, mm-hmm. to talk about it. So what does the future of this look like? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, you've mentioned that, uh, the rhetoric's sort of changing in popular culture. You mentioned that, uh, it's going, we're seeing some of these drugs going through clinical trials. Uh, what does this mean for the future of the industry? And again, for investors moving forward. Right. So, um, I think one of the things that we really like about psychedelics um, from an investment perspective is that it's highly defensible. And it's highly defensible because the future is one built on top of drugs that went through clinical trials. There is no greater competitive moat mm-hmm. in the universe of finance, in the universe of business, than a drug that went through clinical trials. Because uh, that is one of the hardest processes to get through in the world. The success rates are very low. And you once you get through, mm-hmm. you then probably have a three to four year buffer before the next drug comes through and challenges you. So it's a massive competitive mm-hmm. mode. And all of the drugs that are being developed here are going through those trials. So a lot of people like to think of psychedelics as like cannabis 2.0, and it's not that at all. You know us. We, we could not okay. be more bearish on cannabis commoditized (laughs) anybody can grow it anybody can sell it there's no competitive moats being built there therefore there's no margin preservation there's no profit production there's no value for shareholders to be had don't Mm -hmm. like it at all psychedelics Mm -hmm. basically learn from those mistakes and is doing the exact opposite so these psychedelic companies it's not like anybody can grow shrooms what they're doing is they're creating Mm -hmm novel compounds based on the active ingredient in mushrooms, psilocybin. So that's a patented proprietary process. They are putting that drug through clinical trials. Once it gets through clinical trials, that is another massive moat. Then there's the whole delivery aspect of it. So we're not talking, this is a drug where I go to my doctor, they say, take some psilocybin. I go to my local CVS and I pick up my psilocybin prescription. That, that's not how these things are administered. They're mind-altering medications, and mm-hmm. they do have a tendency to alter your mind. You don't want your mind altered in an unsafe <laughs> yeah. setting. So the setting in which you take sure. these medications is just as important as the medication itself, which is why the companies in the space okay. – aren't just creating medicines, they're creating treatment processes. So you go to a psilocybin treatment or a psychedelic treatment center, you meet with a doctor who administers your Mm -hmm. treatment, let's call it a psilocybin treatment, and then you're in a room, a very smartly designed safe room that is Mm -hmm. supposed to optimize your experience so that you don't feel scared or threatened or some of the Mm -hmm. negative feelings that can come with psychedelics and instead you feel the positive stuff which is 
happy, at ease, stress-free. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the medicine. It's the how you administer that medicine. That's another competitive mode. There are companies in the space that are patenting okay. you know, the administration of those things. So when, you, when all is said and done, a psychedelics company in five years, whoever the leader is going to be, is going to have massive mm-hmm. competitive modes. They're going to have a drug that's been through FDA, that's been through clinical mm-hmm. trials. You're going to have a compound that is proprietary and patented. You're going to have a delivery method that is proprietary and patented. You're going to have psychedelic centers that you know are yours and owned and nobody else controls them. So I think that there are massive moats here which allow for massive profit production in the future. And that's why we really like psychedelics as an investment opportunity and not just as an exciting mm-hmm. new space. So what does it look like in five years? You're probably, I mean, there are dozens of companies out there right now developing compounds. Um, I think by 2025, 2026, 2027, mm-hmm. you'll have two or three that actually make it through clinical trials. You'll probably have a psilocybin-based one or maybe one or two. Maybe you'll have a uh, ketamine-based one. Um, and you'll probably have three or four of these drugs out there mm-hmm. that are going to become the status quo for treating mental health disorders. Um, so as opposed to going to your doctor and getting prescribed okay. Lexapro or some some medication, you're going to go to your doctor. They're going to prescribe you some psilocybin-based therapy. Then you're going to go to a uh, psilocybin therapy center. You're going to get those medicines. And over the course of probably a 12-week treatment, you're going to improve the state of your mental health. Um, you don't stay there the whole time. You go there for an hour. You take it. You let your high wear off and you go back home. Uh, you probably do that once a week. That's the future of this industry. That's what mental health care into you know post twenty twenty five looks like. We're investing in the companies that are going to be the pioneers or the dominating companies in that in that world. So that's what it looks like. That's why we're excited about it. Not going to tell you the names of the companies right now. That's for our subscribers. But it's you know I think the names there have supremely high upside potential. The best biotech stock to buy right now, in my opinion. All right. Okay. Good to hear. Uh, moving along, I uh, want to talk a little bit about uh, Kathy Wood's uh, ARC. Growth stocks have outperformed in the last month. Mm-hmm. I know you pointed out uh, to your subscribers over at Investor Place that some technical analysis shows Kathy Wood's ARC is forming an interesting pattern. Uh, can you talk to, to us a little bit about what you're seeing there? Sure. Yeah, I, I am trying to pull it up right now, but I will describe it as I pull it up. Um In technical analysis, there's something called an ascending triangle. And ascending triangles are when – so triangles are like a big thing in technical analysis. A lot of technical traders love to look at triangles. It's all about triangles because when a triangle converges, something big happens to that convergence. Now, what we're seeing in Kathy Wood's ETF, the ARC ETF, is we're seeing an ascending triangle. Now, an ascending triangle is – I just got the image. I'm pulling it up and then I'm going to share my screen. get that screen share going for you okay let me know when it's on your when when you can see it coming in now okay yep all right i'm seeing this all right i'm seeing a triangle okay so here's your triangle an ascending triangle is when you have this horizontal top so your resistance line you have this consistent line of resistance where every time the stock kind of tops out there tops out tops out okay and then you have this increasing support line this rising support line so we top out we come down 
We top out, we come down, but we come down to a little bit less than when we came down back here. We top out and we come down, we come down okay. back to a little bit less than when we came down here, right? So you have this increasing resistance line with this stable yep. support line, the convergence of the triangle here. Normally, technical analysis says sure. that once you get to this convergence point, you get a massive breakout to the upside. So this is the okay. bullish ascending triangle that's forming not just in Kathy's ETF, but in a lot of her holdings and a lot of the, these growth stocks. And so I think that's a pretty okay. bullish technical pattern that implies we're due for a short-term breakout in growth stocks. Um, and I, okay. I, I think that it lines up fundamentally with where we are in the cycle. Inflation fears have receded. Recession fears mm -hmm. are now front and center. The Fed is done playing hard talk. They're doing hard walk. They're actually hiking oh. 50, 75, 75. I think, I think next week they go 75. Looks like 100 is not on the table, so they're probably going to 75. Anyways, that's 75, 75 back to back, 150 in, in a month. That's, that's wild. Um, so mm -hmm. the Fed is playing hardball finally. Um, inflation rates are finally decelerating. Um, the growth to value ratio is finally rebounding after a, a complete plunge in 2022. Um, yields are coming down. We talked about this earlier. The 10-year Treasury yield front ran rate hikes up to 3.5. Now it's come back, come down back to three, and most most analysts see it range bound in that lower three percent range for the next several years. I think it actually comes a little bit lower. So you you are seeing this mm -hmm. fundamental shift in markets where. Okay, mm -hmm. we're going into a recession. The Fed's going to kill inflation. Then what's going to happen? Right? Markets like to look six, nine, 12 months in the future. They're discounting mechanisms. So let's mm -hmm. look six, nine, 12 months in the future. End of 23, first quarter of 23, mid 23. What does the economy look like at that point in time? We probably have low inflation. I believe inflation falls from 9% mm -hmm. today to around 3%, if not 2% by that point in time. You probably have okay. a really slow economy because the Fed, in order to kill inflation, is going to hike rates very aggressively. That's going to kill the economy or at least slow the economy dramatically. So you're probably going to have a really slow moving mm -hmm. economy with low inflation. That's a type of economy the Fed is going to stimulate with either rate hikes or maybe some QE. In that backdrop, a slow moving, low inflation economy with rate cuts, with potential QE that's the 2010s backdrop. What happened in the 2010? Okay. Growth stocks, ARC ETF, tech stocks soared. They were the biggest winners. So mm -hmm. I think we're moving back to that environment. I think this whole 2020, 2021, 2022 thing is like it's this weird three-year anomalous period that is mm -hmm. now normalizing. The housing market's normalizing. We talked about that. I think the financial mm -hmm. markets are normalizing. 2020 pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, weird. 2021, whoa, we got all the stimulus because of the pandemic. Boom, 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 boom. 2022, oh, we got to pay back for all that stimulus. Gosh, darn it. Cycle's yeah. done. That cycle's done. We've mm -hmm. ripped through this cycle. We had the massive crash, the huge stimulus, paying back for the stimulus, and now we're going back into a new cycle. So this cycle is almost done. And if so, that means mm -hmm. we're going to be in a new cycle, early cycle in 23. What performs in early cycles? Tech stocks, growth stocks, the stuff that benefits from stimulative uh, monetary policy 
and the stuff that grows and helps drive growth throughout the U.S. economy. So um, I think this cycle is kind of run its course. We're nearing the end of it. Okay. As we near the end of it, these stocks are going to soar. The technicals are showing us that right now. I believe a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was last week, we talked about the breadth indicator, the number of NASDAQ mm-hmm. stocks trading above the 200-day moving average, how it flipped below 20% to above 20%. 100% of the time, that leads to big rallies in tech stocks over the next 60 days. Um, we're seeing the growth to value ratio, growth to value ratio rebound meaningfully. We talked about that. We're seeing really aggressive insider buying in tech stocks. So there really is this mountain of evidence piling up right now to support that thesis that this cycle, we've ripped through it mm. and we're about to go into a new cycle where tech stocks, growth stocks are actually the market's biggest winners. And I think today, um, before we started this call, let me pull it up. I mean, our our growth stocks were were rallying like crazy. And again, yeah, they're they're continuing to rally like crazy. And that's continued what has been a solid month of a very significant outperformance in the growth sector. I think that continues. I think that persists. The one caveat there is the upcoming okay. earnings season. Um, I think okay. this rally, this recovery is not going to be linear. Mm-hmm. Two steps forward, one step back. Okay. Two steps forward, one step back. Okay. I think this earnings season is going to be a pretty big one step back. Earnings are not going to be good. Companies okay. are going to guide down. Management's going to sound yeah. cautious, pessimistic. Earnings estimates, they're just now starting to come down a little bit. They're going to start to come down a lot. Against that backdrop, I think stocks are largely priced for it, but still just the optics of it, you're going to get sellers into the market. I think we take a step back. And then we take two steps forward. So I do not think it's like woo off to the races from here, but I do think it's two steps forward, mm-hmm. one step back with the earnings, two steps forward, then something's going to happen, one mm-hmm. step back, two steps forward, we're going to zigzag, but we're going to zigzag up. And that's good. That's mm-hmm. healthy. Straight line rallies aren't sustainable. Zigzag rallies, entirely sustainable. So I want to see that. I want to see two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. The problem is we've been doing one step forward, two steps back, one step forward, two steps back. And I think that reverses. <laughs> so and I think that reverses now. I think we do two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. That's that's my school of thought. I think there's a lot of evidence supporting that school of thought. So that that's where we are today. All right. Uh, well, moving into, and you touched on it a little bit already, but the Fed is set to right. hike rates again next week. Expectations are for another 75 basis points. Uh, possibly, and there's been talk of a hundred basis point hike. Is this like last time where you explain it, where they're saying a hundred so that when they say 75, it's like, oh, okay, cool. It's 75, not a hundred. Um, and can you explain if it is a hundred, uh, how that's in the cards and what investors should look for from the Fed? Yeah. I mean, I think they should go a hundred. I do, but I don't think they will. Okay. Um, recent commentary suggests they're definitely not going to go a hundred. Um, Waller. I think three Fed officials over the past three days basically have come out and said, um, yeah, maybe we're not going to do 100. They're, they're saying, hey, 75 is large. Like, okay. That's a huge hike, and it is. That's a jumbo hike. We don't want to you know, do more than that. Like that. That is sufficient for the market we're seeing, for the economy we're seeing, for the inflation we're seeing. So mm-hmm. they're probably going to go 75. 
I think the market's going to celebrate that because it's not 100. Okay. I think they should go 100 because I want to kill inflation. The faster, the better. Like, let's just like, let's just machine gun inflation. <laughs> let, let, let's not try and throw guards out there and yeah, like yeah. take a pistol to it. Let's get an AK and let's just destroy inflation. That's what I think they should do. <laughs> but, you know, 75 is good enough. It, you know, it's right. more than 25, yeah. it's more than 50. So 75, 100, eh, Fugazi, yeah. Fugazi. Uh, I think, you know, half dozen one, six the other. Um, it, it's it's going to be good either way uh, because the Fed is now fully fighting inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- again, I think the market will celebrate 75. I think yields will continue to stabilize. I think it provides a basis for stocks to move higher. Um, and it'll probably be, if we do get a step back because of earnings, the Fed going 75 might be what helps us get those two steps forward um, after the earnings pullback. But they're kind of happening concurrently to one another. So it's definitely going to be a tug war over the next few weeks between what the Fed does, which I think will be beneficial for markets, and what earnings will look like, which I think will be detrimental to markets. So I think we're going to get that tug of war, which is why I'm expecting volatility over the next four weeks, after which I think we take two big steps forward. Okay. Uh, quick pivot to a topic we haven't really covered on the show before, but uh, something that I know you want to talk about, uh, and that's venture capital. Uh, can you give us a quick overview right. on why you watch the VC markets and what are the most interesting trends that you're currently seeing in this space? Yeah, so why I watch the VC markets is they're tied to the public markets. I mean, VC investments become they have IPOs and they become stocks that you and I trade and own and invest in. So um, it's very important to watch the pipeline of VC ideas, VC money to know, okay, what are those guys excited about? Um, What are those firms investing in? Where's the money being allocated to get a pulse for what's coming next uh, in the IPO market, what's coming next for stocks. Um, I think that is a really good kind of leading indicator of, of the stock market. And what we're seeing in VC right now is definitely a pullback in funding. Absolutely. We've seen a pullback in 2022 in funding. But that pullback has been concentrated in large cap, um, large cap being kind of late stage deals. Then we're actually seeing a acceleration in seed funding that the earliest stage companies, very small startups, are getting more funding than ever. And that's very typical in recessions. VC behavior is such that we still have all this money because we raised a bunch of money, but we don't want to pump it into companies whose valuations got bloated. So we're going to pump it into new companies or we can kind of set the valuation on our own terms. So you're seeing Mm -hmm. a lot of money flow into seed funding. Um, that's interesting and very typical because, like I said, that's what normally happens. The other thing we're noting is that there's been a lot of money flowing into three industries. One, clean tech. Tons of money going into clean tech, whether it's energy storage, whether it's batteries, whether it's EVs, solar, hydrogen, lots of money going into hydrogen. There are a lot of VC dollars being allocated to clean tech right now. Number two is ag tech. We're seeing a lot of VC dollars, record ag tech funding. The whole VC market's down. Ag tech funding is hitting new record highs. A lot of money going into agricultural technology right now. And the third area is automation. We're seeing a lot of money being kind of funneled into robotic startups, AI startups, supply chain automation startups. These are companies that are seeing uh, an uptick in funding in the current market. That gives us confidence in saying, okay, VCs clearly believe those areas of investment will drive 
very strong growth during this economically turbulent period and after it passes. Those are high conviction investment uh, opportunities. In the stock market, we're trying to invest in those opportunities. We're trying to invest in ag tech, clean tech, and automation. If there are three areas of investment to concentrate in right now, I would say it's those three. Clean tech, go get yourself some EV makers, look at the battery companies, look at energy storage companies, hydrogen, super bullish on hydrogen. Ag tech, <laughs> look at, look at, we talked about vertical farming recently. Look yep. at some vertical farming mm-hmm. stocks. Maybe look at some, mm-hmm. um, uh, some, some chicken stocks, as weird as that may seem. But I think there's a lot of innovation going on in ag tech that's worth looking at. Um, synthetic biology is actually mm-hmm. a really interesting, a kind of tangential play on ag tech. So go get yourself some, some mm-hmm. exposure to that. And then automation. Go look at the robotics companies. Go look at the supply chain automation companies. Look at the AI companies. Let's go and get some exposure to those. So that's where the VCs are increasing exposure at the current moment. That's where I think investors, public investors, should be increasing exposure to as well, so long as your plan is to buy and hold those investments for the next three, five years. Because that's what VCs do, right? VCs are the quintessence of buy and hold folks. They aren't, okay, I'm buying now. I'm, I'm trading out in three months. Their money is locked up. Yeah. They pump in millions, sometimes tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions, sometimes mm-hmm. billions into certain investments and then just sit and wait for five, 10 years for that to compound and generate enormous returns. That's what they do. So if your investment philosophy is like that, then follow the VCs. And VCs are in clean tech, ag tech, and automation. That's where I want exposure right now. That's where I suggest other folks get exposure to as well. Okay. Uh, good to know for VCs. Uh, going into our crypto check-in, uh, crypto is notching a mini breakout from that critical 20,000 level. Uh, are you reading into this much or should we continue to expect a slow grind? Yeah, so we we saw this little breakout coming. Um, we kind of wrote about it to our subscribers last week. Let me show you the kind of chart that we showed them, um, letting them know, hey, you know, 20,000 shown pretty good support. We're actually kind of forming a little mm-hmm. uptrend here. We're probably going to make a run to 23. Um, and indeed, it looks like we're running to 23. Last I checked, we were 22.8. Where are we right now? That was not a rhetorical question, Aaron. No. <laughs> Where are I? I <laughs> That's a good. Uh, BTC. Uh, we are at. 23 oh we're over 23 right now there you go broke 23 so as you can see that's what our chart that we broke 23 yeah can, can you see it on your end aaron this chart yep you can see it on my end yep so as you can see this is exactly what we were telling subscribers would happen we said we'd, we'd, we'd kind of run towards an above okay. the 23 level look here so here's when we've been consolidating on 20,000 20,000 is that critical support level we talked about it yep. you know so many different times why this is a level at which bitcoin could yeah could could bottom right i mean you have the um yep. you have the uh the realized price lines right around there the rbt ratio spiked to abnormally high levels at the, around twenty thousand. dormancy flows collapsed to very low levels uh price spent ratio between long-term holders and short-term holders has risen above one around these twenty thousand dollar levels again that's consistent with bear market bottom so pure multiple mayor multiple there's all these on-chain metrics that are just screaming 20,000 is a bottom. Looks like indeed it is. Broke 20, rebounded. 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 So very interesting. More interesting. The lows (laughs) are getting 
higher and the highs are getting higher. Mini uptrend here at mm-hmm. that support. We said, okay, this is where we were on Saturday. We're going to make a run to 23 next week for sure, easily. That's where we are. It looks mm-hmm. like you broke above 23. So naturally, we kind of expect a little pullback now. Come back down. Maybe we retest 20. Then we come back up. So I think that this little formation is going to persist. Um, I don't think we're going to all of a sudden now run to – let me stop the screen share. You're kind of sick and tired of looking at that chart probably. Um, <laughs> I don't think now we're going to all of a sudden run to 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. This is not the new boom cycle. This is strength. Yeah in a consolidation period, which I expect to persist into the end of the year. Then once you get a Fed pivot, once things start to really shift in terms of liquidity flows in the market, then I think you start the new boom cycle. That's probably Q4 2022, maybe first half of 23. I could be wrong on that. It could be starting earlier for sure. That's why we're invested. But Mm -hmm. we're not expanding our risk. Right, we're staying concentrated. We're staying mm-hmm. narrow. We're staying slim. We're staying focused on a very few number of crypto holdings until this thing really starts mm-hmm. to show us that maybe it's done consolidating. Then we'll expand out. We don't think yeah. that's what it's doing right now. This is expected strength mm-hmm. in a consolidation period. Therefore, we're staying focused. We're staying narrow. You can trade in and out of this. Pretty easy to trade in and out of this right now. I think um, once we start to see signs that it's a little bit more than consolidation, we'll expand the risk back out, start taking more shots on different alts. But for now, stay consolidated, stay focused. Um, I think it continues to consolidate around that 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23 level. I think we're kind of in that range. If we start breaking to 25, 26, we'll talk again next week. But for now, I think we're still in that range. All right. Sounds good. Uh, well, that's all for our topics. We do have uh, one fan question this week from Danny Luong. Luke, do you uh, do you think the biotechnology genome editing sequencing will explode soon, like say within one to two years, or is it still at the infant stage and are, is it too early to get in? Thank you. I think that genomic sequencing is a little early. Um, I think synthetic biology is a bit more advanced and worth looking in, but in terms of like actually editing genes and doing things in vitro with humans, I think we're very early on that front. Next one to two years, will there be major technological developments? Absolutely. Will any of those technological developments immediately lead to commercialization? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Probably not. So, um, I like the space. But I like it on the understanding that I'm going to be holding the investments in that space for probably over five years. Um, Mm -hmm. And I expect to make many times my money over that five-year period, but I'm not looking for anything over the next 12 months. Um, Mm -hmm. Having said that, those are the types of stocks that will soar if what we just talked about does come to fruition. If this market shifts back towards growth, early cycle, technology, yields stay stable in the 3% range, inflation comes down, economy slows. Gene editing stocks are the exact types of stocks that will lead that rally. So could they be due for a massive short-term breakout? Absolutely. These things trade in unison rising tides lift all boats they'll be one of the boats that gets lifted if this tide rises for Mm -hmm. sure all right well great insights for our listeners and hgi investors as always luke any last words before we wrap 
No, Aaron, I had a lot of fun this week. I really like touching on on psychedelics. I think that's one of the most uh, misunderstood and underrated investment opportunities in the market today. Um, My certainty there is Mm -hmm. near 100%. Maybe the companies that exist today won't be the ones that commercialize it. I think some of them will be, but the science there is foolproof. Um, Mm -hmm. Psychedelics are going to reimagine mental health treatment as we know it. And by 2030, I'd be shocked if there were any medication in the market that was not a psychedelic-inspired medication for ADHD, depression, addiction, so on and so forth. Mm. Well, hopefully we both get a chance to take a look at that Netflix documentary before the next time we talk about psychedelics. Uh, And I want to thank everybody for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comments section. And we love to hear your feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover and see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Until then, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you next week. Bye, all.